My, oh my, how the time does fly. Here we are, past July, already into August, closely approaching September. I know for so many, the school bells have begun to rung, and it seems like summer is fading into a memory. And yet, there's always an escape, even when the mundane, the droll, the dragging, the routine becomes just a bit too monotonous. We're generally very lucky that we have a place we can go, place I love to go, otherwise known as DC Comics News Spinner Rack. This is episode number 23. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and I love the Spinner Rack because for me, it exists outside of time and space. It's a place I can go to whenever I want to think about what I think are the top five books that are out from DC Comics each and every week. The best part about that, it feels like for me that the spinner rack always spins and something new is always there to catch my eye. I'm going to kick things off with issue number 11 from Lucifer. Now, I really enjoyed this book. I've been really lucky to review this for DC Comics News, and in discovering it, I'm able to connect with a character who I was able to briefly experience when my friends were drooling over Neil Gaiman's Books of Magic way back in the 90s when I was still a bit of a youngster. Enjoying this title now has been an opportunity to experience something that, while I didn't get the chance to enjoy the first time around due to, well, my home environment and certain things not being allowed in and if getting caught with punishments and such would have ensued. Embracing this title now as an adult brings a lot of satisfaction for me. I was really thrilled to discover this adventure that's been occurring with Lucifer and the way he is so consistent in his pursuit, even though to those around him, those looking from outside in, well, he can be a little bit annoying, frustrating, unrevealing, one who plays the cards close to his chest. (laughs) I love this story, Meditations on Nothing at All, written by Dan Waters. Great art here by uh, Sebastian Fiumara and Leo Max, with colors by Dave McCaig, letters by Steve Wands, and a great cover by Tiffany Terrell. And I really thought that overall, this was just hands down a great issue. It opens with this idea of being in the void. Actually, Let me stop there. It opens with Lucifer, continuing from last issue, when he dove into the void in order to seek out the Hindu god Yama, because without speaking with Yama, he can't find out whether or not the Hindu underworld might be a place where Sikoriks can seek refuge in the remaining hours, well, actually when the remaining hours that she has left have ended and the punishment from heaven is brought down upon her and Lucifer. But before you even get to that, there's this gorgeous cover that I absolutely love. This beautiful thing with Sikorax and Thessaly wearing masks, so until you read the issue, you don't quite know it's them. But if I spoiled that for you, I take full responsibility. And a face composed of fiery clouds, surrounded by ravens, looking down upon her. When I was writing the review, I remember posing a question and saying, What could this be? The burning eyes of God, the watchful gaze of Lucifer, perhaps God's angel, Ragel. 
Or maybe it's to imply the idea that someone's always watching. Either way, a gorgeous cover that perfectly folds into the opening of, of Lucifer in the Abyss, a place where in order to enter all of his avatars, all of his many selves appeared before this present version dove into the void. And there's this great line, Dan Waters, you really did something great here. There is an ocean of nothing at the bottom of everything. And I think that's just a lovely idea. And it opens this issue with this sort of thoughtful, curious, reflective Lucifer, one who knows the comfort of the void compared to everything else he has to experience. Judgment of his father, the world, the troubles he's created, the, the things that he knows he's responsible for, but I'm sure at times is completely tired of having to deal with. But in this moment of questioning whether or not he could stay there forever, we get a chance to see all of his avatars and every single one says no. And that's when Yama appears and they have a great conversation, which is hidden from the reader because we shipped back to Caliban waiting on the shores of the void and getting a bit of inquisition from the Hindu goddess who led Lucifer and Caliban down to the void. She suggests that he doesn't see himself as fully as he could because much like Lucifer, Caliban contains all of these many avatars and that there is a more perfect version of him, if not a perfect version of him, that is possible. One that has wings and a joyous heart. And this is an interesting challenge to place before Caliban because he is right now believing that only heaven can redeem him and give him those things. And yet this goddess is suggesting that he already has them. No bargain needs to be made, which is really important because later on, when pressed by Regal about what Lucifer's plans might be, Caliban, who's been so frustrated with Lucifer and feels that even when he leaves the Hindu underworld and collects a debt, which I think is very important, I'll come back to in a moment, Caliban is frustrated and feels like this isn't what should be done or useful in any way to help out his mother. And he believes Lucifer is selfish. So he has to travel back to the church in Milan and where in there, he calls out to Ragel, who allows Caliban to once more see the beauties of heaven and understand what it is he might attain should he be successful. And I think he's aware that he's about to disappoint them, and this is his last chance to see it. So when he tells Ragel that he doesn't know Lucifer's plan, because Lucifer has no plan, he only has his own selfish desires, this leads to a, an interesting conversation where Ragel approaches Lucifer, challenges him, and Lucifer suggests that even Regal isn't happy being the avenging hand of God and that the void, a little gift that he was able, Lucifer was able to take from the Hindu underworld and carry with him and share with Regal is a possibility that Regal misses. And it's something that he should be reminded of while in the midst of always following God's commands without any question or consideration especially of what it does to himself. The issue also moves into the continuing story of Sikorax, who has been really kind of not aware of a lot of things going on behind her, much like many of the others, Thessaly included. And it has to do with the suicide woods that exist in Hell's Forest. And in this situation, Thessaly informs Sikorax that a witch hunter well, actually, a shovel made from wood from Hell's Forest informs Thessaly and Sikorix that a witch hunter came to the island and hung two creatures from a tree. 
and that they must go seek out this witch hunter. But in order to leave the island, they have to cover themselves with mud and mass so that the island itself will still give them the protection from the eyes of God. And yet they can still continue on this journey to find this witch hunter. And by the time they reach the middle of the ocean, or at least far enough away from the island for it to begin to rain, Sikorix realizes that what's happening is a trap to reveal her before the eyes of God. And that when she questions the handle of the shovel made from the wood of the suicide forest, she learns that it's the, the tree that was grown from the soul of Samson, who believed that he had performed a righteous act, but was still banished by heaven to hell for committing suicide. And now it appears he's making a play, one that we'll have to wait until issue number 12 to discover. These were just a few of what I felt were some of the best moments in this story. And they pointed to why I really think sometimes with an issue that makes it on the spinner rack, it's really hard to find those negatives. I know on this one, I was really struggling to do so. I feel that some of the issues that were raised by Mazikeen earlier are now being addressed really in, a, in a, a good way. And I also feel that there's some great revelations and discoveries that for me made this story a, a lot of fun. And I absolutely love the gorgeous artwork. I continue to be amazed at the way dark and light can be cast in so many different versions on the page and how in that way the shadows and the brilliance that accompany both the darkness and the light are so masterfully uh, displayed and illustrated by the art team. This is really just a gorgeous issue. It makes me pine for those days when I could have been reading books of magic and other books and understanding more about the history of Lucifer so that it could greater inform the experience I'm having now, what the blessing is, thanks to so many resources out there. I know that's something I'll get to do soon, and I do believe it will inform the context of this great Lucifer storyline that I've been lucky enough to follow and even write reviews for. I'm going to be honest, it should come as no surprise. Actually, there's no need to be honest. It should come as no surprise. Lucifer, number 11 for me, gets a solid 5 out of 5, and is a great way to kick off DC Comics News Spinner Rack episode number 23. And my second choice for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack is going to be Nightwing, number 63. This is part of the Year of the Villain storyline, and something I've really enjoyed. And my second choice for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack episode number 23 is Nightwing. Number 63. I really enjoyed this issue. I thought that it was a lot of fun, and I also felt that it really raised the stakes in a storyline that, so far, has been fairly intriguing. In the story Family Matters by Dan Jurgens and art by Ronan Cliquet, with colors by Nick Filardi, and letters by And World Design, featuring a cover by Bruno Redondo, and a variant cover by Warren Lowe, this amazing book and issue focuses around the Nightwing team. Nightwing Blue, Zach Edwards, and a, a cast that have taken on the responsibility of Nightwing in his stead since his recent injury and his unwillingness to redon or don the costume again because he doesn't feel that that's who he is anymore. He's still someone who wants to help. But he's been working with the team undercover as someone they call Cabby. And in his work with them, he's had the chance to assess just how well they're doing 
and what he believes they still need and also how much he thinks he can get involved with what they're doing. It's interesting because this is a life that he's led, one that he understands, and yet at the same time, it's one that because of the change that's occurred to him, the loss of his memory and the way that it has affected not only how he sees the world, but how he interacts with others, really makes it difficult for him to come to grips with how he wants to be involved with the team. The balance for him has been a home life that he's been able to create with his partner, while also holding down a fairly basic cabbie job, one that allows him to interact with people, check out the city. But in this issue leads to a complication because the Talons, who were part of the Court of Owls and uh, quite a nemesis for Batman and the entire Bat family, have set their sights on Dick Grayson. Now, whether they know what's happened to him or not, the simple fact that they're there means that trouble is coming for everyone. One of the talents makes a point of introducing himself when he steps into the cab and calls himself William Cobb. Dick has no recognition of what this name might mean, but fans of the Court of Owls might pick up on the context here. Rolling blackouts are striking the city and crime is high, which means that same night or that next night, the Nightwing team is out on patrol. And this is where Dick Grayson first learns just who the Talons are if he doesn't remember them from his past and what they're capable of when one of the Nightwing team members is found strung up, stabbed with Talon knives, and the team has to cut him down before he, it looks like, almost chokes on his own blood. Now, there's a cliffhanger in which William Cobb is then seen entering the bar where Dick Grayson's partner, Theo, works. What's going to happen next? I can only imagine that this is going to be a tool to put Dick in an uncomfortable situation and see not only how he responds personally, but whether or not he calls on or relies on the rest of the team to help him out now that the life of his partner is in danger and the life of one of the team has been so severely threatened. One interesting note, when the member of the Nightwing team is attacked by Talon, Talon only says one word, fraud. Now I find that interesting because I believe that the Talons have a certain level of respect or admiration for Nightwing and they, for whatever reason, disagree with the Nightwing team that's taken his mantle or stepped up in its place. And also, I feel like there might be a desire for them to see if they can use this to draw Dick Grayson's old memories to the surface and in some way, maybe take advantage of that, or if nothing else, return a former worthy adversary to his standing. I feel like the Talons, because they have that mastermind behind the scenes kind of thing, they probably have many pieces in play. But of what I can understand through this issue and what I've seen so far, that's my initial interpretation. Now, what I'm curious about is what your thoughts are. Overall, this was a really interesting story that I thought developed the idea about Dick Grayson and the team and also his relationship with it and his day-to-day -day life and also how these elements from his past that he can't even quite remember are coming into play. But when it comes to what he's going to do about it, that's something we're going to have to wait until next issue 
to see more about and to learn exactly what Dick Grayson's response is. I really enjoyed the story and art in this one. I thought it was fairly solid. There were some moments where I enjoyed the cartoon, sort of lack of definition to the, the faces of the characters, but then I was confused when other times it became so much more pronounced or clear, either through light or shadow. It was a little bit of an inconsistency for me that didn't hurt the issue, but didn't make it feel like it was popping on every page. Some pages felt really close with the detail, others felt softer, and that was an interesting challenge. But overall, more than happy to give this one a solid 4 out of 5 for me on the art and story, and it's the reason why I went ahead and added Nightwing number 63 to the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. Because that's our second issue, it means we have to go ahead and take a quick break to share some ads with you, pay some bills, and then thank you for your patience because we'll be coming right back, right after that, with choices three, four, and five. Thanks for hanging out. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi everyone. I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC. Movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. <laughs> no. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. Well, thank you for sticking with us, and happy to have you back after that quick commercial break. I'm picking things right back up with my third choice for this episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, and that's going to be Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number two. I really enjoyed this story from writer Mac Fraction. Uh, great art from Steve Leiber with colors from Nathan Fairbairn, Clayton Cowles doing the lettering with Lieber and Fairburn handling the cover and Ben Oliver providing a really fun variant cover. Both covers for this issue were great. The original with Jimmy being chased by this whole cast of characters, everyone from Perry White to Bizarro, to the variant, which is Jimmy maybe on a Vespa, if nothing else, on a scooter that looks similar to a Vespa. Yellow, white eggshell helmet, and 
soaring through the sky because Superman has his hand wrapped around the back of Jimmy's vest and clearly is carrying him. <laughs> Which really makes this, this sort of opening scene from Jimmy and his brother painful. I mean, the opening of the issue starts with more of the history. They call him Joachim Olsen and his relationship with Luthias Alexander. Now, the history is something that's going to continue to develop as we move through this uh, Maxi series. But clearly, there's going to be some challenges ahead. And when Jimmy's brother shows up and is less than respectful and seems to just really hate Jimmy, it's discovered that that statue from last issue that was destroyed was something that Jimmy's brother had been fighting to keep. And it's also something that now has further damaged their relationship. Little quips, little digs like, what do you win when you get a Pulitzer? And Jimmy says a coin, to which he then uses that said coin to open a beer bottle. And then the story of how he actually got the picture, which is one of pure luck and happenstance, suggests that Jimmy is just bumbling through life, while his brother, who has a plan of Metropolis and was trying to do something to fight back against all the changes that Lex Luthor is making, has now been undermined by this act from Jimmy. And because of it, their relationship right now is one in which I don't believe Jimmy's brother is speaking to him. But things pick up with a lighthearted tone when we get a chance to see Jimmy hanging out with Superman, doing a bunch of just silly stuff on top of the Daily Planet. They do things like demonstrate how Superman isn't really good at magic, but does have time to run off and rescue a kitty, wear a blonde wig. And then there's a moment when something's happening and he has to run off and invites Jimmy to come, be boots on the ground, be the first guy there. To which Jimmy says, no, that's actually not his speed anymore. What he does is silly, just like everything they were doing tonight. Now, Superman wants to argue because in his long and storied history with Superman, Jimmy has had more than a few occasions to be heroic, and he has. Not to say that it hasn't all gone to his head, but when he's been able to accomplish, when he has been heroic, whether it's fighting back against Brainiac or just riding as an embed with Lois somewhere overseas, and sometimes just getting beat up for whatever it was he was trying to do, Superman believes that Jimmy is more than just silly. But when Jimmy shines him on, and agrees to let Superman take off, the story flashes forward through a little bit more of the history between Jimmy's brother and Lex Luthor, and then finally moves into more about, well, the end of last issue, when we saw Jimmy in Gotham. Clearly, that's where he's ended up now, and the events that we're seeing in those other chapters are leading us there. But what exactly he's doing in Gotham now, and how that ties into those other stories, is part of a long view that we're still not able, or at least I'm still not able to see much more than beyond the horizon. However, I have been enjoying the sunrises and sunsets, and while the sun is set on issue number two of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the new light shines on issue number three. This was a perfect issue. The art team, the writing, the way that the main story is broken into these segments, and the way we get to see so much of who Jimmy Olsen is through great vignettes and interactions with amazing characters like Superman, who in this moment 
are less about being the heroes that we know them for and more about being a reflection in which to understand and connect with Jimmy. This was a perfect issue for me and my pleasure to give a solid five out of five. Now, my score is always fun to share with you, but I think it's just as much, if not more fun, when you share your score with us. My fourth choice for the DC Comics new spinner rack is the DC Black Label book, Superman Year One, Book Two, as written by Frank Miller, with art by John Romita Jr., including inks from Danny Meeky, color by Alex Sinclair, letters by John Workman, with the cover from John Romita Jr., with Danny Meeky and Alex Sinclair, and a variant cover by Frank Miller with Alex Sinclair. I really enjoyed this story. I've been struggling with the challenge because in so many ways I love the idea of Frank Miller going back and looking at this story that he did. This story all the way back from The Dark Knight Returns. And in that story, Superman swore his allegiance to the United States and was something of a, a living weapon. And I wondered how he came to be that way and what the process was. And so it was intriguing as I was recently uh, discussing with the guy at my local comic shop, the idea of creating the origin for that version of Superman. And by viewing it through that lens, it really becomes an interesting process and exercise. I really enjoyed the way this book opened by setting a tone and then following through very concisely. The idea of Clark's environment has to be very concrete in order to understand just what it is he has to go through, just what it is he has to do, and just how difficult the challenges would be for any normal person. And I think Frank Miller does a really nice job of demonstrating how easy it is for Clark, but then also using his powers to reveal how difficult it is for everyone around him and how he realizes how much work it is for them. And that understanding, I think, is something that's very valuable because it starts to open up the idea of just how much more than others Clark really is and how important that really is for who Superman will one day become, whether it's in this version of his creation origin story or whether it's in another version. Now, I personally think that this is why we start to see Clark yearn for more and Later, when he's caught by a CO out watching the water, he thinks he sees mermaids, perhaps hears them singing out there in the water. Now, the CO doesn't confirm that these are indeed mermaids or even sirens from lead, but he doesn't deny it, only to then challenge Clark at the end of their conversation to verify that this was never discussed, nor will it ever be discussed again in the future unless the CO decides to bring it up. This becomes really important because from this point on, Clark is yearning for more. And eventually, one day after having enough, he journeys out to meet not only Atlanteans, but Mira, who I recognize and many will from her relationship with Arthur Curry, otherwise known as Aquaman, in regular DC continuity. The relationship that develops between Clark and Mira is very interesting. It's young, it's primal, and I love that later a challenge to Clark's conscience pushes him to strive, 
create a relationship with her to see just what he's capable of and what they're capable of together, even if it means taking on her father beside her. Some of the art in this book is just breathtaking. There was this sense of awe and new and freshness in the first book, and that feeling still exists because so much of the world is being discovered. And yet at the same time, there there's this mastery of creating that young adult tone, the feeling of seeing perhaps the shadows, even when it should be bright, cheerful, fun, and also for recognizing just what those shadows mean. I really think for me, it, it created this sort of recognition that if this is a story arc in three chapters, three books, then this second book is about the, the sort of growth and expansion and perhaps a bit of the width and breadth and wildness that can occur in a younger person's life as they move from childhood and teen into young adult and then eventually move beyond that phase, which I think is what I'm going to see more of and will see more of in the uh, third book or book three of this series. I really enjoyed everything that was done in this book. There was one issue for me, I'll be completely honest. The only detractor is the implication that Poseidon does not want his daughter, Mira, to be with Clark, or any man for that matter, is that he wishes Mira to replace his wife in every way. That sort of suggestion, which implies uh, a sexual side as well, mirrors a tone that was uncomfortable in the first book when some teenage boys confronted Lana Lang and decided to use their numbers to threaten her. And then once they had the upper hand of power, to try and assault her sexually. Both of these issues, while I understand their value and, and recognize that they do reflect things that happen in the real world, it's a moment where I had to pause because it just felt uncomfortable. And I'm not sure how much it did for the story, I understand that it might be an attempt to you know, create empathy for Mira or to show an uglier side of the Atlantean underworld or Atlantean world underwater. And yet at the same time, it just created that same sense of discomfort. And that was the only drawback. It is, however, why these Black Label books are designed for older and more mature readers. But I'm not sure that having that tag or title was necessary for a reason to take the story in this direction. Overall, aside from that small note, I really enjoyed everything that I saw in this book, and I love the way it set up the potential for all the challenges that are going to come in book three. I can't wait to see how this uh, story ends. And I'm also just really pleased that I've been able to not only read this story, but share it with you, and that the quality has been so good that I've been able to include it on the spinner rack for both of its books so far. I'm hoping the third follows through, and that's something I get to include as well. As far as my score, because of that small detraction, I couldn't honestly give this a 5 out of 5, but I'm confident and comfortable giving it a 4.5 out of 5. Maybe you'll have a different response to what I described. Maybe it's uh, less of a reaction. Maybe it's more so. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts either way. Listen to the end for all the ways we give you to do that. And for my fifth and final choice for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack is Batman number 77. This was a difficult book. I knew that there had been a challenge that was 
created by the circumstances that Bain asked for when he was given the offer from Lex Luthor during the year of the villain crossover. And Bain's requirement that there be no interference or exception allowed to heroes regarding Gotham and that Gotham remain off limits and that there was a special addendum which included that any member of the Bat family seen within Gotham would result in the immediate death of Alfred, was building to a point when the last issue revealed a discussion between Tim Drake and Damian Wayne that showed that Damian was not comfortable with the rest of the family and all the other superheroes agreeing to the terms created by Bane and Luther. Damien felt it was a sign of cowardice and weakness, and I believed after reading that scene that at some point Damien would act. And it's in issue number 77 that we see him go into action. I really enjoyed this story. I thought it did a wonderful job of showing just what happens when someone decides they're not going to have it anymore. And that can be a good thing unless you're going up against, well, Gotham Girl, more importantly, the Grim Knight, who has partnered with Bane to take over Gotham. This story was written, again, by Tom King, who's been in charge of this series from the beginning and is leading us now towards his final issue up in number 85. Pencils were provided by Mikkel Yannin and Tony S. Daniel, with inks from Yannin, Norm Ratman, and Daniel, as well as colors from Jordi Belair and Tomu Moore. Clayton Cowles, a name we just mentioned here on the Spinner Rack, provided the letters, with Daniel and Moore providing the cover, and Clayton Crane providing the varied cover. I really like the original cover, with Grim Knight and Gotham Girl. I wasn't the biggest fan of the varied cover. I thought it was okay. It just... there was something missing from it. But it wasn't really about the covers in this issue. In this issue, it was about the story. And the story begins with Damien taking action. He is very astute. He's a planner. And because he's so mischievous and he likes to win, his ability to take down Gotham Girl is not surprising. That's not the big issue, though. The big issue, for me, is what happens when Bane or the Grim Knight steps in. And... Unfortunately, by page 12, the Grim Knight makes his appearance, and he is not gentle or light of hand. He's not polite, and he's very clear that he is going to punish Damien for breaking the rules, and he's going to make it hurt. Damien does his best, puts up a brave front, but at one point, Grim Knight gets the upper hand, and unlike other characters or heroes, he is brutal. He is painful in his beatdown of Damien. And this leads to an uncomfortable moment later when Damien has to sit in a chair and face the consequences. Now, this is one of those stories where I really feel that the events fall into that spoiler category. I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end. It's something you'll have to read about but I am left with a question afterwards, which was that when Tom King was working on his storyline, he mentioned that as he was approaching what at the time had been his run-up through 100 issues, that he had a plan coming up soon around issue 85 
to put in place something that would change the very nature of Batman for decades, if not centuries to come. And this event that occurs at the end of this issue could be the very thing that Tom King was talking about, or it could be the catalyst for his bigger change or event, which still has eight issues remaining before it has to occur and his time on Batman comes to a close. What I can say is that from those I had the chance to speak with in the community, there's a lot of interest and curiosity. It, it's a shocking series of events and one that, while the terms are set, it can't always be predicted. So it's interesting also that many are wondering how this might relate or tie into other storylines like Doomsday Clock and whether or not that makes the event uh, concrete, part of continuity, or how else uh, to interpret it. I thought the art was masterful and perfectly matched the story. I will mention that there is a subplot about the rebirth and the healing process for Bruce and how that impacts his relationship with Selina while talking about what next steps might be possible for them, what they both actually want. And because of that, there is a balance to what I feel is generally a, a difficult story after starting on such a light note. Damien's face-off with the Grim Knight and the slow process of him gradually losing after getting such a great start, thankfully is balanced by the story of Bruce and Selina, but it almost feels as though there's a certain level of tragedy included with that, because at this time, both Bruce and Selina are unaware of all the details that are occurring in Gotham, and even if they are, present in the moment events like Damien's intrusion will take time to relay to them. So while they're having this discussion, other events that are occurring within the city in the present are going to affect everything they think they're planning for, everything they're currently talking about. I really enjoyed that balance, and I love the way that the scenes with them are so bright and light in Paris with so much of that French atmosphere, and how, by comparison, Gotham is so dark so forlorn, so despondent. It really made for a perfect issue. It's why I'm more than happy to give Batman number 77 a solid 5 out of 5. And that's going to go ahead and bring this episode, episode number 23 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, to a close. I'd like to thank you for joining me today, and I'd like to let you know that there are a couple of ways for you to always keep in touch with us. One, no matter where you're listening to this now, you can always find DC Comics News on all the major podcast platforms. So if you have a favorite, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play, you can find us there. And if you haven't yet, please head on over and subscribe to the podcast. And rate and review if you don't mind. I'd appreciate it. I know everybody else would too. Plus, I personally think we're a five, and I'd like to see if your score matches that. When it comes to letting me know your scores for any of the books we talked about today, you can find DC Comics News on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. All you have to do is tag your comment with at DC Comics News. That's at 
capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S, capital N, E-W-S. I'd also like to encourage you, if you haven't had a chance yet, if you don't regularly, please check out the DC Comics News Podcast, where you can find me on a semi-regular basis, along with other reviewers and writers and editors from DC Comics News and our sister site, Dark Knight News, where we talk about all the news of the week, of the day, of the season, regarding DC Comics, whether it's in film, television, streaming, public, or just that great source material, comic books. And I'm also going to encourage you to keep an ear open and an eye out for a new broadcast that will be coming from the DC Comics News Podcast, and that's going to be my compadre in the DC Comics News Podcast, Steve J. Ray, who will be bringing to you an episode-by-episode breakdown of Batman the Animated Series. Stay tuned for that, and to make sure you don't miss out, head on over to your favorite platform, subscribe now, and you'll never miss an episode. That's going to do it for us. I really appreciate you sticking around, hanging out with me this episode, like every episode. And if I can leave you with one last reminder, it's going to be the reminder we always love to share here at DC Comics News. Because if there's one thing to remember at the end of a podcast about comics, it's to always read more comics. Thanks so much, folks. Looking forward to seeing you next week right here on the spinning rack. Until then. <laughs>